0: Sometime back, a man came to me who attended a large and a well-funded church here in Houston. And he was upset, really upset, with what he believed were unfortunate decisions that had been made by the leadership in his church. I had no influence over that church or anyone in it or the leadership. And he knew it, but he wanted to vent. And so I listened. The situation was this. The church wanted to attract more young people to their youth department, especially those in the 14 to 17-year-old age range. This was a specific goal with a specific purpose. And one, they deeply desired to see more people come to Christ. And they knew that this is a critical age group to work with with regard to evangelism and salvation. While at the same time, they also deeply desired to increase the population of their church as a whole in general. The idea being, if there are more young teens that are attending the church, and if the young teens are happy attending the church, then the likelihood is that their parents are going to end up attending with them. If the teen's happy here, the parents are happy there, the parents will go where the teen is in order to keep peace in the family. That's not an unusual ministry philosophy Nowadays, most parents are extremely happy when their kids enjoy church. And, of course, the reasoning is the parents would sacrifice their desires for the children's desires, and the church is going to grow. So everybody wins. People get saved, the church grows, everybody wins. My friend actually had no problem with the two objectives. What he was upset about was the method that was settled upon to achieve those objectives. It was decided that the church's youth area would be converted into a nightclub complete with bar, neon lights, music, and dancing. The only difference in the nightclub and what was going to go on in the church was, of course, that there'd be no alcohol, sir, because these were underaged kids. My friend thought that the idea of a nightclub in a church was a bad idea. I can't imagine why he might have thought that. (laughs) I later heard that the majority of the church agreed, and then they shut down the program shortly after it was started. But it does bring up an interesting point. The desire to bring people into the church and to get them saved, I hope you would agree, is a noble idea. I certainly agree with that. There's certainly nothing wrong with getting people saved. There's nothing wrong with getting people into the church. But the question is, how much of the culture... Do we allow into the church in the process? How far are we willing to go? Is a nightclub for 14 to 17-year-olds really that good of an idea? As we've discussed in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, this was a problem in the young church at Corinth. This was a huge problem in the church at Corinth. They were allowing far too much of the culture to seep in through the doors into the church. So that what was going on in the church was not really discernible in any great way from what was going on in the culture. The culture was influencing the church far more than the church was influencing the culture. We've seen that in the first four chapters. You've studied it already. But as we move into First Corinthians chapter five, we find that the problem was even worse than what we had first believed. Far worse. There was behavior being tolerated inside the Corinthian church that was shocking, even to Corinthian non-Christians. And that wasn't easy to do. A man was sleeping with his stepmother. I almost put in the bulletin, this would be an R-rated sermon. <laughs> but what we're preaching is what is the Word of God. The Bible tells us this. A man is sleeping with his stepmother. This behavior was an affront to the morality of Gentile pagans who were, in the thinking of many, the epitome of moral depravity themselves. I find it interesting that we often have 20-20 vision when it comes to the sins of other people, but we're absolutely blind when it comes to our own sins. But the behavior that was going on in Corinth, in this church at this time that was being tolerated, is nothing short of shocking. And even worse, nothing was being done about it. The behavior which should have grieved the church did no such thing. You see, the reputation of the early Christians was already suspect. In Rome, they thought love feasts were orgies. They didn't understand the idea of the communion service and people getting together on the first day of the week and eating and having a joyous time together. Suetonius who was born shortly after 1 Corinthians was written, said Christians were, and I'm going to quote him, a group of people belonging to a new and malevolent fanaticism. So the the reputation of the early church was already suspect. It's a colossal failure of the believer's ambassadorship for Christ to give the unbeliever any excuse for their unbelief. While this was going on in the church at Corinth, the public testimony of the church in Corinth was shot. The problem is really twofold. It's not just about the man. It's twofold. It's about the church. And I want you to see it it's expressed in the first two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where we begin today. It's actually reported, Paul says, that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant, And have not mourned, instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. There are two problems here, not one. And the key to understanding this whole section from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through verse 8, is to see that there are two problems and not just one. The first thing that most of us do is jump all over this guy. And it was legitimate to do that. He was, it was a gross immorality, an immorality that even embarrassed Gentile pagans. But that's not all that's going on here. Something else is happening. It has to do with the purity of the church and their attitude. And their attitude was rotten. So there's the gross immorality, and then there's the church's inappropriate response to this immorality. Now, Paul doesn't give excruciating detail about what's happening. And I'm glad of that. and We don't need the excruciating detail. But because of that, there is a great deal of discussion about the specifics here. The only thing that I'm going to be dogmatic about this morning is that the woman that's involved in this gross immorality is the man's stepmother, not his mother. We can tell that from the Greek text, I believe, with some dogmatism. Whether the man's father is still alive, that's one thing people argue about, perhaps your study notes in your Bible may mention that, but whether the man's father is still alive at the time of this perversion is impossible to determine from the wording of the text. But it's also not necessary for us to determine whether his father is still alive, to determine the meaning here, and meaning is what I'm after this morning. This is a grotesque sin that offends everyone's senses, even the senses of people that are pretty tough to offend. In the spring of 1992, I was doing some classical studies at the University of Houston in order to prepare myself to go to seminary, and I attended at that time a lecture by a visiting professor from another university on Greek sexuality as it was expressed in their art. It's very interesting, actually. We were warned ahead of time that the lecture would be R-rated. But I have to say, that was not the case. It was NC17, if it was anything. It was quite a lecture, with I never will forget some of the slides that went up on the board. The bottom line of this lecture, and I certainly don't intend to give you all the details of that, but the bottom line was that there were very few boundaries, either publicly or privately, on sexual expression in Greece. Again, this is not the appropriate forum to discuss what the boundaries were that they finally did set for themselves, but I want you to understand that the boundaries that they had set were way out there, far beyond anything that you and I might think they might be, way out there. The Corinthian church existed in a broader culture that was, to put it mildly, very liberal in their sexuality. And this is what makes Paul's statement in verse 1 of chapter 5 so stunning. It's actually reported among you that there's immorality among you of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, whose boundaries were way out there. I hope everybody would agree with with what Paul is saying here exceeds by a lot the boundaries of what any of us would consider acceptable behavior sexually. Or even unacceptable behavior sexually. This is way out there. This is an extreme example. The man who attended the church was engaged in behavior that shocked Greeks. We admire the Greeks because of their culture and their literature and their art. Well, maybe we ought to admire them for their literature and some of their art, but not their culture. This was a huge part of it. When I was doing the same studies in classical studies at University of Houston, one of the things that was presented to us was a a ritual that occurred in Sparta. We think of Sparta and the Spartans as being these military people that were quite mighty. But in Sparta there was a ritual that went on each spring where the young men, the 13, 14-year-old boys who had just reached the age of puberty, would be claimed by an older male. And this older male, there would be a ceremony in the streets. The older male would would chase the boy ceremonially through the streets and finally ceremonially catch the boy at the end of the day. And then the older man would introduce the young Greek boy to sexual activity. I don't say that to shock you. I say that to show you how shocking verse 1 of chapter 5 is. Then the Corinthians that were originally the recipients of this would have known all about that. It was just part of their culture. But you don't know all about that. You, you need to see how absolutely shocking this is. This isn't what I would call run-of-the-mill fornication, run-of-the-mill adultery if there is such a thing like that. This is shocking behavior. This behavior would not have been tolerated in secular Greek society. And yet it was being tolerated in the church. You see why Paul is freaking out about this. With good reason. And then in verse 2 again, And you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, in order that one, the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. A casual reading of verse 2 of chapter 5 might make us think that the church was actually proud of the behavior of the man. That's probably not the case. I think that's too casual of a reading. They were boasting in spite of this man's sin, not because of it. How could they boast about the quality of their church or the genuineness of their public testimony when there was such blatant and outrageous immorality in their midst? They should have been grieved, Paul says. And they should have expelled the person or persons if the stepmother was actually attending the church. That's also not clear. There's no indication that the Corinthian church was celebrating the sin or proud of the sin. They were ignoring the sin, while at the same time expressing pride over their own spirituality. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. They were ignoring this, expressing pride over their own spirituality, all the while Paul says, maybe you're not so spiritual after all sport. Maybe you've got something that you need to look at, sport, because if this is what you're tolerating, behavior that the Greeks wouldn't even tolerate, and I've given you just one example. I won't give you others. I know that tested some of you. But if they wouldn't even tolerate it and you're tolerating it, something's wrong with you. See, this is, this passage is to the church, not so much to the fellow. What they're doing is they're refusing to act on it. Paul has to come in, we're going to see later, he acts on it. And then If this is the same person that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians, then the man repents and the church won't let him back in. And Paul has to chew him out for that too. This church was messed up. First they won't boot him, then they won't let him back in. This was early on in the organization of the church. The responsibility for this task would have fallen to church leadership The whole organization of church leadership doesn't really come till the later epistles, like the pastoral epistles, where we have clear delineation between deacons and elders, and we see that the elder, pastor, bishop is all one office. That comes later. But even in this primitive state, in the mid-50s in Corinth, there should have been some leadership structure in the church. And it's the leadership who should have led the way and taken care of the situation, lovingly and kindly, but taking care of the situation. It's here that we need to pause and say just a few things about church discipline. And let me say this up front. If we disciplined everyone who sinned in a church and expelled them, there would be no church. You don't have to amen that, but I'll amen it for all of us. There would be no church. Every church has some in it that have a bent toward legalism, and they want every sin disciplined. We do too. We have some like that here. And you know exactly who you are because you've talked to me before. But that's not biblical. And secondly, the ones that come and say that would be in line for discipline themselves. You see, here it's gross immorality of a sexual nature that didn't even exist among the Gentiles. In 2 Thessalonians, it's gossiping and maligning that is mentioned as a reason for getting booted out of the church. We've got to be so careful here not to be not to be ultra-hyper-judgmental. So it's not a biblical idea to discipline every sin that is committed in the church. And secondly, all of us would be disciplined. And in addition, and this is the most important thing that I will say today, please listen with the ears that hear. The purpose of church discipline is the ultimate restoration of the individual involved. Church discipline is not primarily punitive. It is primarily corrective. It must be carried out with fairness and with love by those individuals in the church with leadership responsibilities. It's not your prerogative to go say something to somebody else. You come and say it to me, say it to one of the people in leadership, and then it'll be filtered. It'll be preyed upon and then exercised. But it's got to be exercised with fairness and love. In a healthy church, church discipline will be a rare thing. A rare thing. I was in Dallas several years ago, attending a conference there. And I found myself sitting next to a nationally known pastor. That's the only way I'll describe him. But if I said his name, you would know it immediately. Who indicated that in his church, this large church up in Dallas, they held a church court Every Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, I would not have believed it had I not heard it with my own ears, had he not been sitting right next to me. My first thought is if this is the case, that you've got enough issues going on, you got to have a church court every Wednesday night, you need to step down, especially because he had been with that church over 20 years. As far as I know he founded the church. It's, it was his baby in terms of spiritual leadership. And if you've got to have a church court that often, something's wrong with your leadership. That's just my opinion. He is a nationally known figure. But this is what blew me away. He went on in his talk. So he didn't just say it to me, but he went on in his talk to bring up the fact that he had brought his own daughter up before the entire congregation. When she became pregnant out of wedlock, brought her up before the church. We should note that the daughter had sinned, but we should also note that this very same girl was repentant. She had confessed her sin. She had repented from it and she was doing everything she could do to move away from it and to make good decisions in the middle of a really bad situation. Some of you I know work at crisis pregnancy centers. You know the trouble these girls get themselves into. They don't need to be beat to death with a bat. They need to be loved, especially when they want to come back. At the very moment, his daughter needed him the most. He threw her under the bus. And I must say, it was my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, that he threw her under the bus to save his own skin. Because it was a very large ministry and it was very embarrassing to him. Again, I was sitting right there. I heard the story from him. This is not second-hand. And he was not embarrassed about the story. He was presenting this as the way that we all ought to do it. And I say, no, a thousand times, though, he doesn't understand the first thing about what's going on in this passage or what's going on in Matthew 18, either one. Not the first thing. The ultimate idea is restoration. His daughter had already repented. She should have been welcomed back, and his arms should have been around her. And even if it was an embarrassment to him... He should have loved her in spite of the, fa- of the hit that it might have taken with his reputation. And as I've done before, please don't ask me. I'm not going to tell you who it is. It's not important. The important part is, is that it's ridiculous if this thing has happened, and it's ridiculous that he would get up and present it to the rest of us as something that should be done. In a healthy church, church discipline will be a rare thing, and it will be a painful thing for all who are involved, the ones dispensing the discipline and the ones who receive it. It's a painful thing, but it must be appropriate. It's so difficult because we're dealing with fallen human beings on both sides of the equation. But back to Corinth. There's no question that this man exceeded the threshold as to what would trigger discipline. I hope you would all agree with that. But no discipline was rendered. So let's see what Paul says he's going to do. Now remember, he's not in Corinth at this time. He's in Ephesus writing this to the Corinthians. For I, on my part though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were there present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Since the church wouldn't act, the apostle Paul exercises his authority as an apostle to act in their stead and he expects them to carry this out the next time that they meet, the next time that they assemble. His decision is to expel the man from the church, handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This is an apostolic prerogative. We don't have apostles today. I know some churches, particularly a lot of African churches that I've visited, uh, have apostles. There's, there are different titles that people go by. One, the, I guess the least one is reverend, and then you got pastor, and then you have bishop, and then you have bishop of bishops, and then you have apostle. And when I was there last time, if you really wanted to be something special, it was apostle of apostles. Two times ago, when I was in Lagos, Nigeria, I was told that one of the apostle of the apostles was coming into the conference, and we they wanted us to stop the whole thing and to recognize it. And I said, I'm not stopping anything. There's a seat right over there. He and his entourage can sit right there. I wasn't going to play into that kind of nonsense, apostle of apostles. But we don't have apostles today, but they did back then. And apostles had certain prerogatives that the elders or the pastors or the bishops did not have. I know of no passage in the New Testament that indicates that an elder, pastor, bishop, again, that's all the same office in New Testament terminology. I know of no passage that says any of us in that position have a right to turn somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Given the way that some people drive on the freeways in Houston, that's probably a good thing that I don't have that prerogative. It's not part of my repertoire. It's strictly an apostolic prerogative. But it's this phrase for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved that I want to spend just a few of our closing moments on today. It, of course, has received a great deal of attention in New Testament literature. Some take it to mean, many take it to mean, that the man is being handed over to Satan by the Apostle Paul so that what John will later call the sin that leads to death will take place in this man's life. In other words, so that Satan can kill him. But that's probably not the best answer here. Because Paul's primary desire was, it's twofold. One is to purify the church, but his primary desire for this man is for his restoration, not for his destruction. His desire is twofold, for the purity of the church and the testimony of the church, and for the restoration of the individual. His desire is that the expulsion will purify the church and the discipline which is at least partly physical, that's why the phrase for the destruction of the flesh is used, it's at least partly physical here, will motivate this individual or individuals, if the woman is involved in, in the church, to wake up and confess the sin, repent of it, and move on. So I don't believe that Paul is actually speaking about the sin that leads to death here. I don't think he wants him to die. That's not the point. He wants him to be restored to fellowship, but something's got to happen to get his attention. just like with me and you sometimes. We may be walking along, merrily upon our way, out of fellowship for months, if not weeks, thinking that we're walking in, in fellowship with God, and then along comes something. We're hit upside the head, and we say, what, where in the world that come from? And we realize that it's divine discipline, and the divine discipline is given by God to get our attention so that we'll get back on the track. It's not given to hurt us. It's given to help us. On Wednesday nights, and this is a blatant advertisement for it, on Wednesday nights we're studying the life of David. We've come to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, David's great sin with Bathsheba. And in chapter 12 and following, we're going to see that David went through 10 years worth of misery. 10 years worth of misery because of the sin with Bathsheba. Bathsheba, and the murder of the riot of the Hittite, which is always on the top of the list, by the way, when those are mentioned. The ten years' worth of misery was not strictly to punish David. The ten years' worth of misery were God's way of saying, David, you knew better than to do that. Don't ever do that again. And knowing David, like I think I know David, after at least many weeks in this study, I'm sure David, after the first couple of years, would say, Lord, I get it. Believe me, if I have that opportunity, I'll never do that again. But God knew David's heart better, and he knew David was a great man who had done a pretty bad thing. So God gives him ten years' worth of misery. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. He wants God to get this man's attention. And so that's why the term destruction of the flesh is used. The idea is restoration, not destruction. Then in verses 6 through 8, "...your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." A comparison and contrast. A strong comparison and contrast. As Paul closes this paragraph, he stresses that evil is pervasive. It spreads out through the whole congregation. When churches are licentious, it should not be a source of pride, but of grief. Christ paid the eternal penalty of sin Not so that we can live in unrighteousness, but righteousness. Christ's death is supposed to have a positive effect on believers, not a negative effect. The fact that he's paid the eternal penalty for sin, if we receive it by grace through faith, the fact that we'll never have to pay that penalty ourselves does in no way encourage us to sin. Only a warped mind would think that. I hear it all over the world. When I I teach that once you're saved, you can never lose your salvation, which is a biblical doctrine. Or even worse, once we teach that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is so offensive to some people. And it always happens that in the question and answer session, somebody raises their hand and says, You mean to tell me? Now you know when a question begins with, You mean to tell me? It's probably not a positive question. (laughs) You mean to tell me? That someone can commit adultery or murder or theft and all they have to do is confess it. And they're going to be restored to fellowship and that's exactly what I mean to tell you. It's not my message, it's God's message. Yeah, with, with the fallen nature that I have, yeah, if it was me, I'd make it a lot harder on you. I'd make you do penance. And I'd make the penance benefit me. That's happened in church history before too, actually. More than you think. No, that's exactly what the Word of God says, because God wants the restoration of his child. He's not trying to hurt his child. He wants that child restored. But he understands that that child's behavior cannot continue if that child is going to be successful. So he says, listen, you're boasting as a church. You think you're such a hot church. You're not a hot church at all. The man's sin was cause for Paul's rebuke. The boasting of the church that they were such a hot church is cause for rebuke. Both things here. That's why I told you in the beginning we have to have both of those if we're going to understand this passage. So he stresses evil is pervasive. It spreads out through the whole congregations. But Christ paid the penalty for sin. And he expects us to live righteously as a result, not unrighteously. It's supposed to have a positive effect on a change in moral behavior, not a negative one. But he talks about the feast here. Let us celebrate the feast. He's not talking about the feast in Israel. By this time, those feasts had faded out. Those feasts all had special purposes. This is now the church age. But he's talking about the gathering together of believers, the way we celebrate our life. Not the feast of Israel, but the Christian life in general should be celebrated not in malice and not in wickedness. Now, this word wickedness is not exactly the same, but it's almost the same as the word for immorality that was used in verse 1, porneia. That's where we get the word pornography from. We're not supposed to celebrate this Christian life in malice, with a horrible attitude and with this kind of gross immorality. Well, if that's not what it's supposed to be, what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be Sincerity. And truth, as he says in verse 8, not with malice and wickedness, but with sincerity and truth. This is a tough chapter. It's going to be even tougher when we see in the next book, if this is indeed the man that's identified later, that the church finally boots him out and then doesn't let him back, it's even worse than then. But this is a scary chapter. Because we can all say, hey, listen, I don't think I would ever... I would never go so far as to have intimacy with a stepmother. That's kind of gross. It's kind of gross to even talk about it, I even think about it, I even visualize. It. It's perverse. Yes, that's right. It was. We can all say, well, I'd never go that far. But do we have pride as a church when we shouldn't have pride? I suspect that we do. And I suspect that that's the ultimate application here is that we need to be careful first with our own lives, that we're not living our own lives in wickedness and this gross immorality or malice. But we live with sincerity and truth. I know some people think sincerity is not a a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, What would you prefer, insincerity? Sincerity and truth is a wonderful thing. It makes for great fellowship with people. It's transparency. That's the word of the day, isn't it? Transparency. And that's what we need as a church is transparency. Realizing that, yes, we have been blessed by God in a tremendous way, in a tremendous way. But we're not a perfect church. There is no such thing, and there will be no such thing until we get to heaven. When all these old sin natures are left behind. There are times, there may be rare times, extremely rare and painful times where something happens that has to be dealt with, but it is rare and it is painful. In the meantime, a church should never be proud or arrogant about itself and its lack of attention to those kind of details. A church's public testimony is far too important to allow it to be ruined by grotesque sin in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-8. through eight.